This podcast is a frank discussion on sexual assault. If you are in the USA for free and confidential help, call 1-800-865-HOPE in Australia for confidential counseling and support in cases of sexual assault or abuse. Please call 1-800-RESPECT. Stephanie Allen is the Director and Principal Clinical Psychologist at Life and Mind Psychology in Sydney, Australia. In this podcast, Stephanie is joined by her colleague, clinical psychologist Ilana Karpin, where they discuss the dangers associated with varying experiences of sexual assault and explain how communication and sharing of trauma through evidence-based therapies can lead survivors on a path of healing. I am extremely excited to be here today. Uh, I am joined by two phenomenal psychologists. Uh, I'd like to welcome you now, Stephanie Allen. You are the founder and director of Life and Mind Psychology here in Sydney, Australia, in the Sutherland Shire. Welcome. Thank you. It's really nice to be here. And I'm also joined here with Alana Karpin, clinical psychologist and colleague of yours, also at Life and Mind Psychology. So welcome, Alana. Thanks for having us. So the topic that we will discuss today is something that resonates um, with almost every survivor on the planet, and that is shame. And we will talk about shame, what it is, defining shame, as well as Uh, methods to attack shame and some of the rehabilitation and the different ways that you can manage shame in order to begin your recovery process. So uh, let's get started and why don't I open it up with either of you who feel comfortable. One of the most basic things to discuss is what is shame. We hear the word all the time, but in many cases, people don't even know what that is. So shall we just begin with a definition and, and, and what it is? Do you want to sure. start? Um, yeah, I mean, it always makes me uh, think of DVT, which is a therapy that covers a lot of emotion regulation skills and helps people learn more about emotion. So I think when you, uh, I guess, look it up in those resources, shame is essentially when something is morally wrong, that when we do something that's morally wrong, like stealing something, things like that, so that naturally um, makes us then want to hide. Alana, do you want to chime in? Yeah, so from a... Yeah, because I, I think when we talk about sexual assault, we often think about shame as a, an unwanted, unhelpful emotion. But from an evolutionary perspective, shame was the emotion that was designed to let us know um, I've done something that would get me kicked out of the tribe because humans are social creatures and they need to survive by being part of a group or part of a tribe. And so shame was designed as the emotion that let you know oh, that you, you've done this, you better not do that and don't and hide that thing that's going to get you kicked out of the tribe, which you know means people can survive because they, people want to stay in the tribe. If that makes sure. sense. So a survival. It's like a moral. Sorry. Yeah. I guess it's like a moral compass, really, isn't it? So it helps guide us through life and and our ability to live in groups and help us determine what behaviours are, I guess, right or wrong. 
and I, I sort of see shame in this context as a shift from the perpetrator to the victim. And we might talk more about this later, but essentially I think the perpetrators are doing something that's morally wrong when they're performing these acts. And somehow I think they're able to do it by ignoring the shame themselves. And somehow that shame gets transferred onto the victims. And we use words when we talk about emotions, particularly shame like justified or unjustified. So as Alana sort of mentioned, shame would be justified and is justified when we actually do something that is morally wrong. And again, that is what the perpetrators are doing. So what we do essentially is help victims understand that and realize that the shame doesn't belong with them and they're hiding as if they've done something wrong. So I think the biggest shift I find is when you describe to people that actually the perpetrators should be feeling that shame and it would make sense for them to hide and it doesn't make sense for the victim to hide. That's right. And then this day and age when you have Google and all the available self-help online, so many people suffer in silence that um, it is very common for survivors and I've done it myself where I go on and if there's something that comes up I research it and I read about it or listen to videos and and study that way to try to understand these things one thing that keeps coming up when you if you just quickly do google searches of shame and some of the um, literature around that you in very basic terms you hear that shame is different from guilt. This would be a nice thing to touch on right now because these two things get highly confused. And maybe you can talk a little bit to the fact how guilt is something when um, we feel badly because we've done something wrong, as opposed to shame at a deeper level when you believe you are wrong, you are worthless, you are you are bad, as opposed to what you have done is bad. And this is uh, something in my experience, having talked to survivors for many years, um, once this has been clarified, it seems to be a big springboard into more understanding about, oh, there is a difference. And, and maybe we can talk a little bit about that difference between guilt and shame. Yeah. Well, I, I think, yeah, so, so guilt, you can, guilt and shame can happen together, but they can also happen separately. So guilt, Guilt is actually more an individual emotion when you've actually broken your own code. Does that kind of make sense? Can I share just because you're from a sporting, yep. you're from a sporting background, so it makes sense. So guilt would make sense, for example. So because I'm a clinical psychologist, and let's say I said to myself I was going to go for a run this morning, and I didn't. Now, if I felt guilt. It would be because it was breaking my own, do you know what I mean? Like, oh, Your I own discipline. It's, it's my own discipline. Let yourself down. But shame is not justified because, so let's say I went to work and I said, oh, I feel so shameful because, you know, there's no way I can be your psychologist because I didn't go for, a, that doesn't make sense. But I know, let's say you're on an Olympic team <laughs> yep. and the agreement of the team is now, in that instance, you might feel guilt, but you may also feel an element of shame because that was the commitment to the group. Does that kind of make sense? So shame yes. in that sense, you might get kicked off the team if, if, the, if the agreement in the team is that you go for runs every day and you don't, then shame there is. Now, the thing that you're talking about is when shame becomes, so even 
So, so sometimes we talk about shame as a, an emotion that's kind of never justified when, when it is about like the whole person. So when you feel that you are wrong, as opposed to there's a behavior that I've done wrong, that's definitely, you know, we, we always talk about that, that kind of shame is never useful because it has us hiding aspects of ourselves and it doesn't actually help us connect with the world. It actually disconnects it us. It disconnects us. So the, the function of shame when it's working well is always an emotion that was designed to help us stay connected to, to, to our groups, to our tribes. Right. And so even, even so, because so, sometimes we always talk about like shame kind of gets a bad rap and that it's a bad emotion. But sometimes shame can work but it, it never works when what it has you doing is saying, I am, I am the thing to be shameful of, or I am the thing that would get me kicked out of the group, as opposed to what well, I've done something that sure. would get me kicked out. When it's Does that make sense? So it, there's kind of even more, there, there's the difference between shame and guilt. And then there's also the difference between justified shame, which actually helps you stay in tribe. Does that make sure. it means, well, I, I'm going to make sure that I hide the things that would have me kicked out because this group, and, and and that if you think about embarrassment and things like that so if you think about just in being in a social group and you think about the different um I know um one of the people that you talked about talking about wearing different masks so if you think about what we share and don't share in groups that varies based on the group do you know what I mean there are some things that I would share with my very close friends and other that I wouldn't share maybe with a client because sure. it's not kind of part of the relationship. And it could even um, transcend to gender as well. So I just hosted Gavin Badger this weekend and powerful stories about shame around him and how he, from a male perspective, that was heavy hitting for him because it, it went into homophobia and it went into um, attacking his manliness and his whole life thinking, um, you know, this shame about what are people going to think? Am I vulnerable? Am I a weak little man? Or, um, and then, yeah, some bigger issues around mm -hmm. that. So it does seem to attack your identity depending on your personal situation or what. It's contextual. It's based contextual, on your group. Contextual, yes. It's always, shame is always based on what group. And, and then I was thinking, because like, I was kind of thinking about like part of this is obviously we want to get rid of the shame around sexual assault and kind of because as Steph was saying, that shame doesn't belong to with us to the to the victim. To the victim. But I suppose we also want to acknowledge why is it that people um, stay stuck in shame? And unfortunately, the reality is that in some groups, you know, if, if shame is the amount mm. that tells you oh, I'm going to get kicked out. Unfortunately, there are still some groups and some cultures where you will get kicked out if you disclose this. Does that make sense? Mm. So, so yes. shame. So we also want to don't tell people you shouldn't have shame because the reason people have shame is because it makes sense. Does that make sense? Like in some ways, shame has been protective because somewhere they've known that if I told people this, and and if you if you listen to some of the stories that some of the people have told, you know, finding the right person to tell that says, hey, you know, it's okay. We, we still, you know, you, you are still whole and human. And, and as Steph was saying, the shame belongs to someone else. But unfortunately, that's not the reality for many people. Mm. Many people, the, maybe their first disclosure or even just the messages they get from the world, tell them, if I you share You don't want this, to hear it. 
if yeah. if I shared this, I would be kicked out of the group. Now, whether that be off the swim team or off, you know, like this will ruin my chances of, you know, like the, if I do this, the coach will kick me off the team, like that has been mentioned, sure. or whether it be it will disrupt my family, like my family won't, you know, like this will destroy my family. It'll break them apart. It'll break them apart. Yeah. So in some ways, yeah. particularly when this is very, when people have these experiences very young, you know, it, it's like shame starts off as something that protects the groups they belong to. Well, and it's a good point that you make. And from, again, just throwing in um, just a very little bit of personal experience, shame does disconnect people and it does destroy relationships when um, in there are times in my life where it, um, a wonderful relationship was destroyed um, because um, I told about my assault and it actually was something that happened to the same to this other girl by the same person um and we've never spoken again it was such a destructive bit of information and again i'm not coming from a professional perspective on this all i know is that when i told one of my best friends in life about my rape and um, it resonated so hard with her and she was also a victim it was too much and there went the friendship. So there is a danger. It's not to say that, you know, everybody agrees for the most part that speaking out and talking about your shame is so important. And I do believe that, but there can still be very tough consequences on the back of that in, um, and yet you're trying to survive. So it's, it's a bit loaded. And, and I was thinking, so we can talk about all what's needed for people to be able to, but, but I was thinking about Brene Brown. I know you put her yeah. there. She's got, and I'll probably- And just let people her. know, do you know Brene Brown? Well, I don't know her personally, but no. I've read her work. Just to the listeners, Brene Brown comes up a lot. Do you um, want to just mention well, who she, she is? She's a shame researcher and she's done yes. lots of research on this, but she's got this lovely little thing, which I think relates to what you say. And she says something like, oh, share your shame with those who've earned the right to hear it. Yes. And I think that kind of tells us that, you know, that, 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 so in that the best way to kind of get over shame eventually is to do the opposite of it because shame thrives on secrecy. So we want to, you know, not hide. But the other thing we have to be careful of is we want to be doing the process in a safe place where we're going to get messages that say welcome to tribe it's okay we care about you because the the difficulty is is that when you share in other spaces where it's not safe to do so unfortunately the shame message gets reinforced and, and i think you'll i think um was it kim that talked about that maybe that her first time i, I can't remember but that you know people have had those experiences where they've told somebody and then it's reinforced that message no 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 i should just keep this secret. Right. And just before we go on, I'd just like to reiterate something you said that needs to be clearly heard. Shame survives on silence and secrecy. And again, this is part of the core here, going back to reasons why we need to dig in and talk about shame. Not only understanding what it is, but understanding what shame thrives on. And it is the secret and the silence that it loves because it grows inside, it has no release out. And it's it's that type of thing that festers in you. And over the long period of time that it typically does is directly linked to um, 
so many of the issues that we see in the aftermath, whether it's alcoholism, drug addiction, anxiety, depression, eating disorders, suicidal thoughts and tendencies. So that list can go on. Um, Nancy Hogshead Maker is uh, one of the guests on Open Stance, three-time Olympic gold medalist and silver medalist in the 84 Olympics. Um, she is a survivor of rape. And one of the questions that came to the fore for her is, what should you look for in a good shame listener? So we're talking about bringing up extremely difficult subject matter um, that can wreak havoc on your life. How do you trust that person? What do you look for? What, um, what is the route for somebody that knows maybe they need to get this out, but how devastating it can be? Steph? Are you talking about in, in friendships or in a professional? Because I sort of think about what Alana talked about earlier about how I guess we have, if we think about friendships or family members or people in our personal life, there might be people that we would share different levels of detail with about our emotional world, if you like. So I would sort of say to people, start with someone where you might feel like there's already a level of depth about what you share with them. However, that might not be the case for some people. They might have friendships that are more on a surface level. So I would sort of, I think of it like an onion, peeling back layers. So obviously, that, and you've used the word core quite a lot, Tracy, that I think those sorts of events, those really big traumatic events, I think sit very much at our core. So I would sort of imagine that you would disclose I guess, broader details perhaps and then see what sort of response you get from someone if you like. So checking, you might even mention that you were assaulted and then see what someone's reaction is. So clearly if they have a curious non-judgmental reaction then that might tell you that they're quite open to hearing about that experience. Who knows, they might even disclose their own. Whereas if you're dismissed and they look like emotional, I guess, things or topics are not really something that they're adept at or willing to discuss, that would probably be my gauge that maybe that's not the best person to talk to about. Or you might start by talking to a therapist about it and actually, I mean, Alana would probably agree, we might spend a fair amount of time talking to someone about well, when and how and who, with whom would you share that sort of information. Because often people will sit in front of us and say they've never told anyone, not their husband, their wife, their partner. So I think it's something that could be discussed in a lot more detail. I have what a real thoughts about that, Alana. There's a real, uh, and this will um, lead into your response, Alana, but I have a very personal example of what you just talked about, Stephanie. And this is Kim Rodenbaugh Llewellyn, who is also a guest on Open Stance. She's also a former Olympic swimmer and um, she's the survivor of several rapes and, and child abuse. Um, and she suffered with shame for many, many years. We're talking over 20 years. And she authored the book, Master of the Mask, talking about how she covered up her shame for uh, most of her life. And going to what you said and how she disclosed, she was so sick with shame and the aftermath living in silence. She finally approached her college roommate at one stage and Kim was suffering from a, a very horrible eating disorder at the time, just one of the things with alcohol and everything else involved. 
but the eating disorder was the one that she asked her college roommate about. And it was in that time. So she was too scared to even talk about the trauma of rape and abuse, which was, she knew that was the core problem, too scary to talk about, and went to the next, yes, the next she's, piece, she's putting her yeah. in the water. And what that did was led to the college roommate telling him, and you need to go home, see your parents, tell your parents. And next thing you knew, Kim did that. She ended up in rehab and it was to deal with the alcoholism and eating disorder and all of that. But it was within the environment of rehab that she met a trauma specialist psychologist who was, un, who was able to unpeel the onion as, peel back the onion, as you said, Steph, and get to the core of the trauma, which is the first time she was able to release those demons. And then that's when she was able to eventually tackle all the other surrounding destructive behaviors in her life. So that was a real life example we just heard about and also hear a lot about in her book, Master of the Mask, about how she put her toe in. I was just thinking while you were talking about that, I mean, it's not that people have to go to therapy first before they disclose it to someone else, but I also think that uh, talking about it in the therapy process, and this is probably, Tracy, what you were just touching on, I think it makes people a little bit more robust, perhaps, and a little bit less vulnerable, so that if they did share that information with somebody and they were met with quite a dismissive response, I think it probably they might be better shielded from it if I could say and they'll just sort of walk away and not take it on board and think all right you have an issue or discussing this or that's difficult for you but that's okay I just won't choose you to talk to about that I'll go and choose someone else as opposed to potentially internalizing it oh okay there's something wrong with me still that person won't talk to me about it which might perpetuate the shame Absolutely. does that make sense are you looking at me like I need to explain that further or yeah that's no no it's, it's resonating heavily with me because in many cases you only have one chance and when you're brave enough in that one little window in life to to tell somebody or even put your toe in the in the water if you get rejected from that conversation in any respect or not believed or felt to made um, unimportant about that issue or you know the common one is oh it's so long ago, haven't you gotten over that? You know, just, it can be any little thing that is said out of ignorance and no one's fault other than people are ignorant about these issues. It's, um, it's, it's a wrecking ball right back through your life, which can launch you back into silence for maybe uh, the rest of your life. So it's a big question about where people go and how, um, number one, how do you recognize shame and then if you actually do, or it's some other behavior that is leading you, because you know you're rock bottom, typically you're rock bottom when this happens, uh, who, you know, finding that person is so important, at least to direct you somewhere. And, and then I think, I think, Steph, you're right. Like sometimes there will be someone in your life that you know can tolerate that, but sometimes it is about starting off on that professional path too. Because I think you, like when I listen to... Um, your piece on this before like I noticed that you said you'd already done a bit of work so that when you told your family you were able yes. to be with that process much more and and you did have a an outcome that was that sounded yes. like it was really yes. open and receptive but I think there's that balance of knowing that you're in a place to be able to talk about it too because I think there's also 
so so we'll talk about flooding as well like so the idea is that if you haven't told anyone as well sometimes just even the process of telling can feel like you can drown in the story if that makes sense so the other the other piece sometimes is knowing that the person that um that you're telling is able to to I don't want to say bear, but to be able to hold you and contain mm. whatever happens, because sometimes that's a you know sometimes that can um, talk about being triggered and things like that. That you know sometimes you can tell the story, but I noticed when you talked about telling the story to your brother and your family, you were able to tell the story because again sometimes when you first tell someone, you're not even you don't even have the skills or the to be able to tell the story in a way that means that you're not back in the story or that, it, you know, um, you know, people might might kind of say something and then go drink or then sure. go use the very strategy that they're dealing with. And that's kind of not what we're wanting either, to, to, you know, to kind of go, oh, it's out there, but then not have the capacity to work with. So that's a good question for both of you. That's and coming coming from the um, survivor chair, speaking to two professionals, uh, I was extremely fortunate that I landed in a specialized trauma uh, counselor's office. That's as simple as it is. This person was trained in trauma, in rape trauma. And I don't know if I would have handled it if I had landed anywhere else. I don't mm -hmm. think anyone else could have handled it. Uh, so to ask you, I'm sitting in a chair, there are other people that go to counseling and therapy, which is that first step, but so much does flood. That's an, uh, that's an amazing word to use. I've never heard it. You are completely flooded. You are in, in a way re-victimized. You're reliving your trauma. You're bringing up an, um, a volcano of pain, anger, and all the things that go into it. As counselors and clinical psychologists, what do you do to help prepare a patient who is about to go on this journey and deal with trauma like this? So we often, I mean, you talk about, there's two pieces that you just talked about. One is trust and one mm. is safety. And, and so, you know, we rarely step, like we would, we would kind of think about, I suppose whether you call it a hierarchy or that there's things that have to happen first before we would walk people through their story. So, and that's not to shut people down, but it might be that they allude to it or they, you know, it's kind of like something happened to me. But in terms of actually really processing the story itself, we, one, need to know that this is a, you know, that the people that you're entrusting me with very important information. Feel safe. And so, so that's part of it is the relationship safety. But then the other thing is um, making sure that the person has, like, I suppose, Steph, would you call it like psychological, like things that they, yes. psychological resources within themselves to help? Yes, the stress tolerance. Yeah, yes. when you leave the yes. session, we don't want you talking and then leaving the session and feeling flooded and overwhelmed and then kind of going back and saying, well, look, I'm never going to do that again because look what happened. So we would usually spend quite a bit of time either individually or even just assessing what strategies do people have to soothe themselves, to distract themselves, to be with emotion. So making a plan for them almost, a little yeah. bit of a game plan, mental game plan. But also just assessing that and and because otherwise what people, because if you think about all those things you talked about, um, eating disorders, suicide, drugs and alcohol, um, self-harm, all of those things are people's best attempts 
to actually manage really strong and intense emotions. That's what we would see it as. So until you have alternative strategies, we don't want to kind of have you, you know, it's inevitable that when you tell the story, emotion will come with it. And as you, and, and trying to pull, pull, pull together that story, making a narrative that actually makes sense to you and that where you're actually able to process the emotions is an important piece. You can't do that if what you do is you, you get into the story and then you jump out by self-harming, suiciding, not eating, cutting yourself, what have I not mentioned, drinking. Yeah. So quite often, and, and that can be, so it can be a danger that people also, because they, they want to deal with the trauma that they jump in or that people, you know, and they don't have the resources yet. And I think that's what you were talking about before. It's like unpeeling that onion, like do do you have the strategies? Do you have the capacity to actually manage this? And we would be doing that. That would be something that a person that's working with trauma would be assessing with you. They would mm. be working out what you, what you have, what, what things are you already doing? Are you able to do alternative things? And then they'd be working with you on that as part of the preparation work to, to go deeper. Now, it doesn't mean they're not going to say, they're going to say, oh, sh- sh- don't talk about the trauma, but they might just get some nuts and bolts of you know like something happened when I was 15 okay so you know or there might be just more you know like a almost kind of like a a chapter heading if that makes sense without going into the details of the story until such time that the person works out okay it sounds like we're safe to go ahead or proceed to that next piece of working on this so when you're just going to say also, well, I mean, we mentioned distress tolerance, and it sounds obvious, but sometimes people think, okay, well, what exactly is that? I mean, coping skills, I think, is a term that most people know and can grab onto. And if we sort of think about, well, what are distress tolerance skills, like Alana said, they're essentially things we can do to reduce our distress without making it worse. So, Tracy, as you mentioned, things like drugs, alcohol, eating too much, not eating enough, over-exercising, all those sorts of things tend to have a self-destructive quality and tend to make things worse. And even though we're aware of that, uh, we try and steer people towards, I guess, more nurturing uh, self-care type of activities. And, I mean, there's a whole list of distress tolerance skills that we can teach people and it might include things like self-soothing through your senses so it could be taking a bath it might be eating something nice if that's not a problem behavior for you but just yeah helping someone develop I think a repertoire or lots of those tools in their toolbox so that when they leave one of these sessions and actually even within the session they're accessing these skills to yes talk about what's happened and acknowledge that the I guess the gates are sort of opening into talking about this issue but then looking after themselves along the way and I think it's a lot like tending to a wound really but there's a real nurturing kindness to it and that you would probably relate that's often the opposite of what people have been doing in relation to their experience absolutely new skills yeah, new skills for people to learn. To, to add on to what you're saying, my brain's going 100 miles an hour. Um, it's so important what you were just saying, and maybe you could elaborate a little bit more on the message that we're saying you can help yourself. So when we talk with survivors of assault, it gets really bad 
many parts in your life. And when you look at the alcohol addictions and the drug addictions and the cutting and the suicide, uh, these are at very severe levels and um, you're, they're threatening your life in, in many places, right? So the message when you're at rock bottom or when you're in these places that you are not thinking logically, you're numbing the pain and it's numbing is not the word, you're trying to kill the pain. Um, the message here is there is help and maybe um, it would be a really awesome time for both of you to uh, share a bit about, yes, from an evidence-based perspective, from, you, you may want to talk about some of the methods that you use, that you have seen success with, and that will, again, give people insight to not only is, okay, talking about this in a safe environment, for example, in therapy or in a counseling session with professionals is is very beneficial, but that next step that you're not just talking to bring up wounds, there's actually yeah. a plan of attack that this is going to be successful with this yeah. kind of work ahead. So that, that sends a powerfully positive message to me right now. Okay, so I've got a smile on my face because I guess I'm full of passion right now. It's reminding me of when I went to New Zealand to do a course about trauma treatment uh, that was run essentially by a lady in America called Melanie Harnett and she's a real guru in this type of trauma treatment and we had that I guess that golden discussion about well how do you how do she educate clients and help them prepare for this journey and I and her words were it fucking works and it's always <laughs> stuck in my head because that's it like and obviously there's more detail that we need to give clients about it but that's essentially her answer because it works yes it's difficult but it will absolutely get you to the other side so that things aren't as hard anymore and so that you're not as overcome by your experience but yeah i just felt like i needed to Put that in there. That, could be best. that actually could probably be the best thing we'll hear all day and people listening that is so real it does work and what a what a nice thing to take away so go with that <laughs> and, and to, i guess the other more important part is that it's evidence-based treatment she you know these these treatments are backed by probably decades of research so we know that it works it's not just your individual clinician saying hey i've done this with a handful of clients i think i'm getting good results we're all doing it because the research is telling us that it works and and so right. yeah no i was just going to say just to kind of outline the what we're talking about what works is that it's the paradox of you know of what what people tend to do when they have a really difficult, strong emotion is deal with them by escaping them. So if you think about all those things, the, mm -hmm. the drug, the suicide, the you know, all those things, they're, they're the best attempts to cope, but coping by escape. And, and the, the two problems with that is one is obviously the side effects of those escape behaviors. But the other, when you deal with something by escaping with it, you always learn escape plus I can't cope. Does that make sense? And you also maintain the shame. Whereas the, 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 in some ways what we're trying to do is we're getting people that the, the hard thing is, is we're saying actually the way, the way it's going to end up working is to get you to approach some of these difficult things in a safe manner so that you can learn that you can, 
I always think about these like tsunamis that like you are you, know, you are riding a tsunami like yes it is a tsunami and I think yeah. that's why the language like kind of kind of saying why would I face this yeah and it's like but you know and, and so all the tools are like the, the things that are help keeping you afloat in that tsunami but as you approach it you kind of ride it to the other end and get a sense of shit that hurts and yeah. I can cope with it yeah you know what I mean so so there's a there's a there's a you approach it but you have to approach it in a safe way that keeps you learning that I can cope and I think the thing is if you just launch yourself at it yes then and you kept getting rebuffed you learn like you maintain that I can't yeah. cope so there is like a, a way of working with this gradually with a clinician that's trained in it so you do want to make sure it is somebody that you know there's lots of amazing clinicians out there and it's also that not everyone knows how to do everything so it's also okay you know that if they're not trauma focused or they're not trauma specialists you may want to find someone that that's that that feels comfortable sitting with you in this space and that's not to denigrate the, the other clinician it's yeah. just like this is a it's quite specialized work and so it makes sense that you know you want people that actually also have the skills to sit with talking about some really um, what what can feel like very risky things or very emotive things yeah. so that's yeah just does that kind of that kind yeah. of yeah yeah the other thing I was just thinking while you were explaining that is that like any individual treatment it's all tailored to suit somebody's needs and the the progress if you like it goes at someone's pace whatever pace the client is comfortable with and that all gets discussed along the way I think a lot of people sort of look at you like you've got to be kidding you're going to make me talk about this and I guess essentially through the exposure process they will learn that it's not as scary talking about it as what they think but also that talking about it even though it feels like you're back there and like you talk about Tracy the re-experiencing the remembering it's all designed to help someone anchor themselves in the here and now and realize that even thinking about it now talking about it now is not actually you being back there in that experience and that's how we reset if you like those memories or mental events that people are experiencing but I think back to going at someone's pace you could take what we might call like a more aggressive approach where someone talks about their biggest fear sort of moments first and that actually helps them get through it more quickly or they can choose a more slowly slowly approach where they gradually build up to talking about the things that or the events that feel more scary it's uh, up to the client yeah and yeah. coming back from a non-clinical perspective in my chair it's it's like the oprah show right so i was um i i watched a couple things on oprah and one time she said you know this is this is why the oprah show back in the day was so successful because people would come on her show and for the first time in their life they would reveal some extraordinary secrets of trauma that they've you know they've had in their in their life of all different types um, and she said the whole success of the show was based on these people purging um, a secret of some great level for the first time. And so she's on one spectrum where you go on the Oprah show, you're yeah. on yeah. worldwide television <laughs> and you're purging um, a, a huge lifelong secret. And um, she has said specifically that 
you see this tremendous relief and this burden um, taken off people and they go on. And uh, so that's one side of it. And then the other side of it is even if it's a very gradual and constructed release strategy in the care of a trained clinical psychologist, trauma specialized, um, for example, uh, that can also, which is my experience, to go in and let the um, let the poison out bit by bit, not all, it didn't just come crashing out for some reason. Then there are other cases of friends of mine who have survived and something triggered them in life and the whole thing came out all at once. But the common denominator that runs across all these stories as is that no matter from a survivor's chair, it seems, again, from my perspective, that once, once you start the process of letting the secret out and letting the poison out, and it's a purging process, once you open those gates, it feels good and you keep going, even though the yes. road and that journey ahead is, is very difficult in most cases, you keep going with it because there's something about it that makes you feel good. And I have been told, even, even Gavin Badger, this uh, courageous guy um, and friend that was on Open Stance this week, he said he lived with his secret for over 30 years. And when he finally told his wife, which you'll hear him talk about in, in his episode, is he said, once I opened my mouth, I couldn't shut up about it. That was his quote. And I totally related to that. And so many other people do. So what we're all talking about here and from a clinical perspective, just finding that, um, finding that way to release that initial secret yeah. and um, yeah, I think like you said, hopefully people can really grab onto the relief that they might get and that they will likely get once they start to talk about it. And I guess the, I think of the word heavy, like how heavy the burden is of carrying all of that shame and hiding for so long. Yeah, that, so that's a, a message that I would give people that there will be a lot of relief that will come with that. And hopefully life won't feel as difficult that you're carrying around that. Probably like a bag of bricks on someone's back. Absolutely. Might feel lighter. Here's another question from Nancy Hogshead Maker. Uh, and this is a good one. It actually takes, it takes us outside of the survivor. And her question is, when you recognize someone you care about as having shame hurt them chronically, they have a hundred pounds on their back. What is the best approach to getting them to talk about it? So maybe from a clinical point of view, when you are dealing, do you have people that you actually deal with that are family members, friends, or husband or a wife that are seeing you professionally, knowing that um, they're there because they can't deal with, or they don't know how to deal with somebody else's shame in their life? Or do you have any... Does that fall into your category of work at yeah. all? Yeah, we, um, we do, uh, do, do, yeah, so if we think about that idea of shame, if shame is the message that says, well, whatever you're going to reveal is going to have to be rejected, and then part of it is being, um, I think just in the questions you ask and the, you know, how do you be open to their experience without further shaming them? Does that sure. make sense? But I suppose the other thing is to make sure, one of the things that we tend to do is say to people, don't feel ashamed. Now, 
I know that sounds like a kind thing to say, but but when you tell someone not to feel something, you're kind of saying that what they're feeling is wrong. (laughs) And whatever they're feeling is actually justified based on their history of experiencing. Does that make sense? You you can't help, you can feel, you know, you can say, I, you know, I feel sad that you feel shame because, you know, I still care about you and everything like that. But part of the thing is sometimes when we care for someone is we want to pull them out of their feeling. And sometimes we have to just match or acknowledge that that is how they're feeling, if that makes sense. 100%. because the shame is probably justified based on the history of their experience, if that makes sense. Like we don't want them to have it. And and in some ways that's what all these social movements is about. If, if we don't want people to experience shame, then we have to use that emotion <laughs> that changes things, which is anger. And that's what, like, if we think about um, a lot of the things that's happening now, like you with this podcast and you've got the, the, Me, the Too Me Too movement. movement. And then here in um, Sydney, Alana, what, what are the big ones? So Grace Tain is the Australian of the Year, and yeah. she's been advocating for for you know sexual assault victims and to you know to to, to make it open. There is a girl, um, oh, Chanel Contos. Chanel Contos, yep, high school student who's been asking people to ring in. And so I suppose that's the thing is what we're trying to do. If we want to shape, if we want to change shame, then because shame is a is a cultural emotion in some ways, what we need to do is make it that people don't you know is to kind of say yes this is not about you this is about the person that did this to you and you know and and again I think part of this part of people hearing other people's stories and other people's experiences people hopefully get that message that oh because I think what happens and and again perpetrators um make use of that in, in in terms of silencing there's lots of things that they do to make people scared which silences and then you feel alone in this and then you take on the message that this is this is me this is about me and, and I am shameful that make, and yes, like you said then yes. that, then you have that feeling of that worthless self-loathing then all those other emotions come so I suppose partly it's about changing big cultures but family cultures and so partly it's about when people tell you their story Partly, it's about being able to match where they're at, as opposed to trying them, you know, in our caringness, not to kind of say that you shouldn't feel. You know, it's like that must be hard. So, is it? Would you say a word is validating it? Number one, like validating sure. that somebody has shame, and saying yes, I, like I would, I would appreciate that if someone said, Tracy, gosh. I'm really sorry and sad for you that you carry that shame. That's really, it must be really hard for you. And that validates that <laughs> a lot of things. Um, and then to add to that, Alana, you mentioned not feeling alone in that, where these movements that are happening now are gaining such traction because it's a basic case of people not feeling alone in some pretty horrific emotional states. And then being able to actually move forward because you recognize that okay, these are normal feelings around what happened to me. I'm not alone. Everybody that I've talked to now in all these movements and this um, young girl in Grace Tame and, and they're the, the voices for many right now who are saying, yes, we have shame and we'll have to learn how to understand it and move through it and, um, uh, and achieve on the back of that. And we can do that. But that 
solidarity in sharing is what's really powerful right now and bringing and again open stances um is a small part of that and what i do in trying to uh, create a sharing platform so that it's not one person feeling alone it's bringing together people to make a difference absolutely and then the shame isn't there because it's no longer there's nothing to hide. It's weird. You're almost <laughs> it's you're almost normalizing it, and you don't. I'm not not to. It's hard to put the right words to it sometimes. But if you're actually creating language and having conversation around this on a regular basis in your homes, in your schools, in your work environments, in your communities, it becomes a normal conversation as opposed to a stigmatized conversation. Where how can a survivor actually talk about something that's so horrific? When the actual community and families that you live in in your schools shame your <laughs> assault or shame the crime that happened to you and they don't have language themselves to mm -hmm. talk about it and there's a stigma in general about it so it's a really compound problem if we don't start with the basic understanding of um, just what we're talking about mm -hmm. what is it and and um, the basic building blocks to to move through it really mm -hmm. That, that like you said it's it's shedding light on it that allows it to change over time yeah yeah and that's the I, th I think that's a hard hard one for for yeah for, for people that are with someone who's with that it's like it's very hard to sit with that at times and so sometimes people do things not because they're not caring it's like it, the act of caring means that they just don't know how to respond sure. that makes sense. so I suppose we also have to keep in mind that yeah continue talking about this makes it easier to have these conversations and for easier for people to kind of know how to have them well it'd be part of the education plan that grace tame and and these um you know leaders and the voices that once we start changing laws changing education changing training platforms incorporating just that basic element and to outsiders that haven't experienced trauma, but to understand how do you talk to your daughter, your son, mm -hmm. uh, your good friend, your mother, your father, anybody in your life. So giving them basic mm -hmm. tools on how mm -hmm. to even open that conversation and that discussion, because it is it, mm -hmm. it is scary for everybody regardless. Is it just, I just had a thought about that, but I haven't like, yeah, I hadn't thought through that before, but again, I was thinking it, in some ways it also makes sense why it's so difficult to talk about, because if you just think about sex, because this, even though this is not about sex, it's about power, but the acts that are performed are about sex. Sexual acts. And if you think about it, that's, you know, from a cultural perspective, they're not things that we usually talk about. Do you know what I mean? So you don't normally sit down to your mom and say, oh, this is what happened to me. You know, like there's lots of things that we have very generic conversations about, but we kind of, they're, they're private things. So we don't talk about them. And so then I think it makes it harder when things like this happen because it's like, well, we wouldn't normally talk about this anyway. And so now you've had something difficult that's happened. So there's that double layer of kind of why you might, Sure. you know like why, why you keep it and why it might then be harder to talk about I, was, I hadn't really thought about that before but I was thinking yeah that's that's true that's that's also true it's like it's an unusual thing for us you know like here we are talking about sexual assault but you and I don't know each other that well we wouldn't really sit down at lunch and say so tell me about sex you know? that's <laughs> we, right. we just wouldn't talk about those things you know they're not that they're, they're it's a very small group of people that would talk about those things and then you're asking people to talk about things where you know, and not only there is it's not only about the sex, but it's about 
the details around criminal the way it's happened acts, and yeah. the criminal, and then the layers of shame related about the power. And so there's, there's it's really complex. Sure. Which is why the I suppose again those conversations around consent are so complex as well because they're they're all tied up in this mm. talking about things that we don't even want to talk about. Would you say that actually relates to a lot of moral issues? I mean, I know we're here today talking about sexual assault, but if you think about other moral issues like cheating or having a termination, like I think those issues often divide people or people feel really strongly about it. So is, is it any wonder that when it comes to those sorts of issues, people start to hesitate who can I talk to about it? How is this going to be received? I mean, even with cheating, just to digress really quickly, I've had people in my office just say that their friends have wiped them because they've mentioned that issue, whether it was what they did or what happened to them, because it's just, yeah, there's such big issues that people feel really strongly about. So I think all of what um, society is doing, what you're talking about, like I guess a top-down approach, so systems, the justice system, organisations, educating people, it's all trying to, I guess like Alana said, do the opposite of what the shame is doing and, and also upskill people, like help help them not only talk about it, but give the listeners and the victim, victim skills to be able to do that because it's one thing to say, great, let's talk about it, but Tracy, as you said, if you were a parent or you're a friend or a partner, well, how do you actually do that with such a big traumatic emotional issue? Yes. Stephanie, from um, just leading on to one of the other great um, denominators of survival or, um, sorry, um, issues surrounding assault and rape is um, the feeling of powerlessness. So the actual act of sexual violence and abuse is stealing somebody's power from them. It's a, it's a, and this is again going to, it will resonate through almost every case, correct? And mm -hmm. From a medical and a clinical psychologist's point of view, can can either of you or both of you share a little bit about um, what what that part of this is in in the trauma, in the recovery, and how do we or how do we make those first steps to regaining our power? It's a big one. It would be. I mean, I, I sort of for me that goes back to. Uh, doing, you know, the opposite action of the shame and talking about it because I think that's a very empowering thing for someone to do. So I think, I think that's a really important part of it. I think also normalising that actually that is, that's how these experiences work. Like it's not your fault that you felt like that. And and in a lot of, in most cases, well, people are literally powerless. They are physically powerless. They're not just feeling that emotionally. They have somebody. I guess a male, as, as is the case most of the time, but, you know, they have somebody who literally has a physical power over them or what you've mentioned, Tracy, people are drugs. So there's a physical powerlessness that I think we sort of help normalise in the event and leave it back at the event. And I would also be sort of checking that someone isn't feeling very powerless or acting like that in other areas of their life. Uh, but I think if we deal with the trauma and help someone talk about it and that that's really empowering. My sense is that sense that powerlessness will dissipate. Alana, is that how you would see it? Yeah, because if we think about 
power, there's this sense of no choice. And, and back then there was no choice. And, and so part of regaining power in, in some ways is, yeah, it is what are the choices that you can make on a minute by minute, day to day basis that has you having power over your life. Do you know what I mean? Because yeah, that, that is that, that you know, there's systemic power clearly. And, and, and again, I suppose that goes back to culture again. Like we, we sometimes can't change that. That requires movements to change power differentials and the laws and things like that. But how do we make sure that what happened to me doesn't now dictate the rest of my life? And so that can be very small picture or big picture. Does that make sense in terms of day by day, minute by minute? What are the things that I can do? Because I think that's the other thing is if you have felt powerless for so long, part of it is that you feel powerless to change or you feel defined by it or, you, you know, you, you start enacting powerlessness even, even in moments where there may be a choice and, and, you, and you may not feel that there is a choice. So recognising, and, and that's where you and um, a professional could potentially help somebody recognise little pieces in their life where, it's affecting um, outside of, you know, just other aspects of their life and giving them tools to grab back on and say, you actually have power over that mm-hmm. and helping to direct them as a, as a strategy. Because people get yeah. patterns or habits, do you know what I mean, of responding in ways that have helped them in the past. So again, if you think about being in a powerless position, you, you do what you can in that moment to survive that much. That's what you do. And, and whatever you did back then it is what you did to survive. But the thing that can sometimes happen, particularly what we call triggers or prompts, is that we start behaving in those ways in situations where that's not required, in relationships or in other situations, whether that be by sub- submitting to things, or not making choices or... Um, does that make sense? So you can't kind of, in some ways, you're, re- you're not reenacting the trauma, but you're you're sticking to what helped you back then that may not be helping you live your current life. Yeah. Um, and I think you, you talk, I don't think we're going to talk about triggers, but I think that kind of relates to that. I was just going to say another um, really important piece that I don't want to leave out in terms of people feeling more powerful is knowing what their options are under the law. So I sort of, I talk to all of my clients about that and just say to them, no matter what you decide to do, please do yourself a favour, talk to the police about your options. So I guess the furthest option down the track is ending up in a courtroom you know, or going through that court process, but there are a lot of other steps before that and someone can choose each step of the way how far they will go. So I I know I have done it with people in my session where I've sat next to them when they've run the police to, and even anonymously to say, all right, this is my situation, what are my options? Obviously, the police, I don't know what it's like in America, but over here we've got specialised roles within the police force designed to talk to victims about what their options are. So I always encourage people to do that. That way, whatever they decide to do, they're making an informed decision. So they might decide to go along, have a meeting with the police and it goes no further, or they might decide to make a statement and it goes no further than that. But I also think that that's a really empowering thing for people to do. And it is against the law. So it's also very validating for people to know that and understand 
I'm, I'm definitely an example of that. It was seven years after I was raped that I left, I lived with that secret for seven years. And then when it finally came out, one of the first things I did that year after I had begun my counseling and started to, to speak about it, I got on a plane with my dad and, and flew to the state where I went to school and reported the rape seven years later and um, ended up, like you said, Stephanie, um, at that time, and for many reasons, it didn't go further than that, but it was a tangible, very empowering scenario. While I didn't realize it in the time, I was just doing it. It was, again, for me as a survivor, it was step by step, day by day. What can I do now? That happened to be something that um, was a possibility for me, and my dad supported and took me. So the grand scheme of things, I didn't know what I was doing, but looking back at it now and listening to what you're saying, that was um, an extraordinarily powerful um, situation that would have, um, you know, helped me move to the next thing. So, you know, dealing with the police and all of that, again, I love what you just said, because in so many cases, that's a frightening scenario mm -hmm. for survivors for a number of reasons, the re-victimization of it, reliving your trauma, being not believed, or just sitting in a room at the police station with a whole bunch of other people. It's not a safe uh, environment. Um, so those are the, the top things that come to mind is why you don't go to the police in these um, situations. However, I really liked how you shone light on the positive side of that, what it can do for you Personally, I never thought about it until right now. And, and that is a, a really strong message to send for some people, definitely. Um, all right, and just kind of rounding it off, triggers, and I'll let you, um, you decide how, in, how you'd like to maybe manage this, but triggers is another thing that is a highly complicated situation. So when you have not dealt with shame and you're living in silence, triggers happen all the time. And one of the things that I have discovered, and again, this is from a non-medical <laughs> chair that I'm sitting in, it's that when you find coping me mechanisms to deal um, when you're triggered and you haven't dealt with your secret, there are behaviors you keep coming back to. There are destructive um, and then they calm down and then you get triggered again and then it rises up like that volcano and you go through the hell again and that's a continuous process which is pretty obvious not healthy mentally or physically in the long term but how okay so that's one type of trigger and then the triggers that you have after you've actually released a secret or you're dealing with shame and trauma and moving forward and through it and getting an outcome on a successful level. How do you manage triggers that still come up? But I'll just leave it to you. That's, um, it's, a, it's a main topic that comes up across mm. the board. Do you want to start? Do you want to, would you like me to start? Where do you? Yeah, you go. I mean, I was just gonna say, that's another podcast in itself. But yes, no, it it's is. a very, very, it's a really important well issue. Because <laughs> when people are living their life, triggers could be everywhere and I'm, they're unpredictable too. So someone might be really aware of certain things that are triggering and then other things just come up and you you end up being triggered. So, I mean, Alana, do you want to sort of speak to that before I do? No, I mean, right. I, I agree with you that we could do a whole podcast. On it. And we can. Um, we we uh, want to back for but, it. Save I, that another one. I do think... Um, 
I guess we're taught with things that are anxiety provoking because these triggers are that generally exposure is really important. Having said that, it may make sense that somebody avoids triggers in the short term if they don't have the skills to deal with the triggers. And like you said, Tracy, they haven't let their secret out or had proper trauma counselling. To me, that would make sense because otherwise they're kind of putting themselves in no man's land. They're being faced with these triggers, emotions are, are rising and they don't have the skills to deal with it either. The distress tolerance skills or the education about, well, how do we deal with these triggers? So that would be my sense that in the short term, avoidance may make sense. Otherwise, being aware of triggers, I mean, that might sound obvious, some, or being aware of how you react because I think often we do things and it's not until we analyse it in more detail that we actually realise how it all fits together. Like, why did I just go to the fridge and get myself a drink? What happened before that? So I think awareness is really key. And again, we might go back to people using whatever coping skills they do have until they learn more because I think it's rare that people would have, we would have clients sitting in front of us where they don't have any coping skills at all. I think they've either got them and they're not able to access them or, yeah. They Maybe sort of one, one thing, instead of, it is absolutely clear, triggers could be an entire podcast in itself. So one thing uh, that would be really relevant today that we could we could capture is triggers when you haven't revealed your secret or your trauma and you're still living in silence with it. So when you're triggered, you can't avoid them and you can't be aware of them because you actually, you're probably in so much denial anyway. You don't, in many cases, even acknowledge that you've had this trauma because that's, uh, that is something that happens. So maybe just to touch on the fact and highlight why, if you do recognize there is the trauma of sexual assault in your life, to recognize the pros and cons of living with that trauma in silence and dealing with the destructive behaviors that come around it on a continuous basis for the rest of your life that um, will be highly detrimental to your health and mental well-being as opposed to the scariness of actually dealing with your trauma, saying it out loud, and the repercussions and the work that comes on the back of that while it's frightening the long-term benefits outweigh what it would be to deal with just trying to manage the trauma trigger by trigger and um, mechanism by mechanism, whether it's alcohol and drugs and, and all the lot. So, so we, we use a different, well, it, it is, but, but when we think about triggers, it's almost like, I always kind of think about, it's like a gun, isn't it? You, you imagine pulling the trigger and whoosh, out comes, there's an automatic pattern of responding. So. Like we think what are triggers that we know that the brain the brain um neurocepts things so it basically means my my brain is constantly scanning right now even in this moment for things that are relevant to my well-being okay now when i'm safe it's you know it's like background radio does that kind of make sense? Like, you know, like you, and then when it, and then sometimes it's going to hear something and it's like tuning into a station. And um, now, now the difference when I get triggered, so, so the things that I'm going to detect, so, so just as we're sitting here, um, the things that I'm going to detect in this room that are going to send me into kind of like, oh my gosh, there's danger, are going to be depend on my learning history. 
Does that make sense? Yes. So if I can use this, I often use this um, example because hopefully it's not real. Hopefully you've never been mauled by a lion. No, but okay. Although I have a lion right here. I don't want to use lions. I don't want to use lions. For the listeners that aren't tuning into the video, we actually have a beautiful lion looking quite serene in the background of Open Stance podcast. So maybe we won't do a lion. What's another scary animal? A a woolly mammoth. There you go. Crocodile? Okay. (laughs) A crocodile. Yeah. So so again, the idea is that, um, you know, if there was a crocodile outside this room, and I didn't know about it, my body would just be humming along doing its own thing. It's not till I know that the crocodile's there that I'd suddenly, understandably, my heart rate would increase. You know, I'd get a a fear response. Now, the thing is, is that if you and I both have, let's say, last year or even last week, I had a really scary experience with a crocodile. Like it jumped in my face and it almost snapped me to me. So the thing is that you're sitting here and maybe there's a crocodile just out there. Now, you're saying to me, what, what's the problem? There's, there's nothing wrong because you can't sense it. The fact that I've had that experience with the crocodile means that my brain is going to be more attuned to the smell of a crocodile, the, you know, the, the really small cues that tell me crocodile is nearby. Does that make sense? Yeah. So you're not going to detect anything, so you're not going to be triggered. Does that make sense? But I'm going to be sitting here and I may not even know because I'm like, I don't get it. My heart's racing. I feel like jumping out of my seat. I want to do something. I want to drink, whatever it is. And it's because my brain, one, is more keyed in to detecting the scent of crocodile, if that makes sense, because that's that, that, that you know, historically has been threatening to me. Danger for you. Danger for me. And what it means is I'm going to be triggered into a response now, obviously, if I see a crocodile, but I don't even need to see the crocodile. Does that make sense? I can sense it. So if you, again, if you go back to, and, and a lot of this memory is, you know, it's in our brain and it's in our bodies. So it also means that, you know, you and I are sitting having a conversation and maybe someone walks in wearing an aftershave that I have no connection to. Do you know what I mean? So I'm just sitting here having a chat to you, having my coffee, and then I'm noticing that you're, starting to sweat and you're saying I've got to get out of here and I'm going what's the story and you may not even know you you, you know maybe you do know oh that's the aftershave but maybe you don't even know because again if you were thinking like you mentioned you know being drugged or things like that so there's two things is that our brain registers we've got you know primitive area of our brain that you know takes on board information there's the cognitive area of our brain which thinks about things and then there's this you know uh, a much more primitive our brain that's constantly detecting threat and it's more about our survival. So, yes, maybe you do know that it's the aftershave, but maybe you don't and suddenly you're getting this response and you don't know why and you just get up and leave me at coffee and I'm thinking, my gosh, what on earth is wrong with Tracy? Does that kind of make sense? Yeah. Does that kind of fear? Yes. And so if you think about how therapy works, down the track is, you know, when when our bodies are kind of under the response of when we can't put words to things, our body acts, our our, um, our emotion system acts in microseconds. Do you know what I mean? Because that's what was effective. You know, if, if, if you think back evolutionary wise, we didn't want to have to go and go, oh, well, is that a really a woolly mammoth there? And, you know, Primal like, instincts. You, know, you just wanted yeah. to smell the woolly mammoth and get out of there. You know, so, so that's from an evolutionary perspective, that's kind of what works. But the problem now is that also means that we can be impacted by things that we 
don't quite understand why we're being impacted on and we can be kind of responding in very automatic patterned ways without really noticing what is it that I'm actually responding to those advertisements. And so, you know, in some ways the process of talking and the process of telling the story is being able to, one, notice those reactions. So quite often part of treatment will be recognising what, what am I doing there so that you can label it. But even as you're telling me that story, so when we do therapy, we don't just say to someone, oh, tell us your story in any old-fashioned we, there's actually a way of telling the story that gets people to integrate their felt experience and the language around it. So that, again, from a choice perspective, so we can label our experience, we can observe our experience, and then we can make choices in how we respond to it. When your body is just doing its own thing, you are kind of almost at the mercy of the triggers. It sounds, it's unregulated a word. Yeah. It's, a, like it's, a, it's an unreg unregulated it's an emotions. It's an unregulated system. Yeah. And the act, you know, a lot of what we're doing in treatment is helping you, you know, you can't regulate something that you don't notice. Sure. You know, if you put your hand on the dial, of, you know, even with the air conditioning, I've got to know where the dial is. <laughs> yeah. So part of, part of working with trauma or working in, with emotions is being able to, Kind of notice them first so that way then we can make sure that like and even just the act of observing and putting language to them changes the relationship in your brain and then then we can change behavior by you know again stephanie was talking about the skills that you would need to use to not automatically react like that now that's really you know again part of the silence is not just to de-shame it but it's actually to change the relationship that you have with those events and creating different story or be, being able to not automatically kind of quite programming you kind of are kind of reprogramming your brain to have different options and different stories and different things you can do rather than having to almost like people kind of talk about groundhog day like just repeating the same patterns and going why do I keep just doing this yeah. so intellectually you might know I don't know why I'm doing this it doesn't make sense but it's like you feel powerless to, to kind so of that goes things. back to um, another way to look at regaining your power through trauma specialized therapy. It just hit me again how how important that is because a lot of times you actually do know you're triggered by something. Yeah. That is something that, uh, again, just speaking from my perspective, that I've heard this quite a bit where we actually, from a survivor point of view, sometimes I'll say I can know when I'm triggered, and I've heard this a lot. So the trigger is actually sounding like something we can really grab onto because if I know that, oh, that movie triggers me every time or that song or that aftershave or whatever it is, I'm putting two and two together that that's a trigger for something. But like you just said, Alana, it's Groundhog Day for me because I have no skills or capacity at where I sit in my world to understand why it's doing that, how to deal with it. And in many cases, until I went through my own therapy, I didn't know there was a way to change those behaviors or those triggers or to know that you can change uh, the way that you think and all the different tools and resources that a trauma therapist and um, specialized psychologist can work with you to get that outcome. So again, I got um, really passionate just listening to you from the point of view that there will be people listening right now that were in my vote many years ago that just think there's no way out of this. 
and that those triggers are just going to happen the rest of your life. So again, just reiterating uh, how important it is to hear you say that, that there is absolutely a way to recognize this. And um, you've spent years studying, uh, you know, education on how to help survivors with these things that's um it's it's amazing to hear that because i, I i'm yeah me oh. no, go. no i was just gonna go. talk about the shame that then sometimes intensifies if people then judge themselves for being triggered and i don't know like you know when you feel powerless to respond unfortunately i think it i i, I suppose that's more a question sure. is like when when you notice triggers and you're not responding differently to them do, do you feel even worse about yourself because you can't figure out how to be strong enough to get over it and rework it yourself? Yeah, because I think yeah. there can be this idea that insight is enough or I should just be motivated. And, yeah. and again, in DBT, like one of the treatments that we use, we often say that insight and motivation is not enough, that it's a skill. For, it, it's, you know, there's, there's things that need to be done differently in response to that. It's not just about whipping yourself into shape. To no, and that's get what I over it. it. <laughs> Coming again from, you know, this is only going to apply to my chair right now, but as an athlete growing up, I was trained to have no weaknesses or no vulnerabilities. That's just how you are as an athlete. You're trained to win and not let anybody in. So you, you build these walls from the very beginning of your athletic career to block out any type of weaknesses. And it, unfortunately, it carries over into the rest of your life. And one of the things that I experienced uh, through my own trauma counseling was um, after dealing with trauma was breaking down all the other walls in my life that um, were detrimental to relationships to thank God I did it then because it would have been real problematic as a mother and in all the other things that were to come in my life and, and probably came because I was able to break down those walls, but it goes back to asking for help. And that is something that across the board, humans are very, it's very hard for us to do is to ask people for help. And that is really one of the first steps because these are triggers that you're talking about, Alana, very clearly we beat ourselves up that we can't fix it, but we're not, we're not trained to fix it. We don't know how to fix it. We don't have those tools. We need to ask for help. Mm -hmm. And that is something that is scary and that's um, potentially frightening for people, but the other side of it is freedom. And that is a word that um, just comes to mind right now because there is a freedom from all of this horrendous behavior and activity and, and destruction in your life by being able to ask somebody like yourselves for that type of help that can just start you on a path to understanding, which is a process to the healing and, and overcoming. So just with the triggers, um, I know we're sort of wrapping up. So Trace, your original question was in the, when someone hasn't had treatment yet and they haven't really talked a lot about their, what's happened, their traumatic events, how do they manage all of it? in the interim, I sort of thought of, well, make a list of what coping skills you do have. I think anybody can do that, even although it might not be possible if someone's feeling that overwhelmed. But I would say, yeah, try and make a list of uh, non-destructive, non-self-destructive coping skills that you do have. Try and use those whenever you can because obviously we want to decrease the destructive behaviors and we want to gradually increase the more the more nurturing, more helpful, distress tolerant skills. And then what I would say is with the self-destructive behaviors, 
going to take a lot of time for those to drop off, whether it's drugs or alcohol or food or whatever it is. But I would sort of say to someone, or self-harm, any moment you're not doing those activities is a skillful moment. So have a think about what it is that you are doing or see if you can lessen those self-destructive uh, behaviours. So, for example, if someone, you know, has six drinks a night, okay, see if you could have five drinks instead. So it's some sort of change heading towards reducing those behaviours. Because I think in the absence of therapy or going through it all in a lot more detail, it would be quite difficult to stop those behaviours and then not know what other skills you're going to use. I think those processes take time, but I think someone, victims out there could certainly be doing things like that, just small things. Definitely. If it's possible. Yeah. Yeah. That's a nice way to look at it, Stephanie, from a point of view of somebody that's really suffering out there that hasn't made any first steps at all and somewhere deep inside wants to get better and help finding that very basic ritual in your day, whatever it might be, that is that simple to grab on and number and to do it, but to recognize that as a positive behavior in your life is, is something that can be really manageable, especially if you're dealing with with um, a family situation, for example, that knows someone has been assaulted or dealing with the trauma of rape or abuse, if that is the case, then those people hearing what you just said is also highly relevant because that's something they can do. Uh, we feel helpless when you know someone's in pain and you can't take that pain away or undo their past. But if you give somebody outside of that victim or survivor, um, that sense of power that I can take this person on a walk today. I can sing music or play piano with this person. I'm just making stuff up. Um, that gives a family setting or a school setting, or I don't know what it could be, the ability and a little bit of power to help contribute to that daily um, positive act that, um, that you've recognized that, that is good. I just that's just coming because that's from, a hard balance to have isn't it to mm. kind of go we recognize your pain and you are not just your pain yes like, and he, here are the things we recognize in you or we can help you do and kind of create a life it's not all dictated so you're not defining by. the person that it's a classic thing for a survivor is uh, when you live in shame you define yourself by your shame your whole life becomes mm. shame and that's all you are unworthy, unlovable, and untouchable. And that is the only thing that resonates in your life. And that's why all the other behaviors compound on top. So eliminating some of that in some respect or opening a door and shining light in one tiny direction that you are something outside of this. And it's a long journey usually to get there, but to making those first steps to introduce you to yourself again and relearning that you are not this. And um, that's, a, that's a big piece of it, absolutely. Well, ladies, um, I think that's a really good um, probably area to stop. We've covered a lot today. And from, from my seat, I'd just like to say a very, I am deeply grateful for having you here today. That is powerful information from a medical and clinical perspective, as well as a very human perspective. 
Um, and what you've shared to me, uh, shared with all of us today is uh, you've taken your time and I know that the impact that most of what you have said will resonate um, with many people and in many cases be life-saving critical information. Uh, so thank you very much. And I know this is the first of many. You, you are my, um, uh, my, what do I call you? My resident psychologist who I will welcome back um, on a routine basis because this is where it happens. This is where recovery happens, healing happens. And on the bigger scheme, on, well, in the bigger picture is what I wanna say that we're not just trying to cope. We're not just trying to get through and live day by day. We're actually sending a message that through understanding, which is what you have done today and what you've shared, is the path to healing, which to the bigger picture is a path to achievement, accomplishment, and in our lives, living a highly fulfilled, loving life. So there's there are puzzle pieces here that are quite powerful. And knowing that what you have shared from your perspective is um, is a starting point to some great things in people's lives that are suffering and dealing with extraordinary trauma. Thanks for having us. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, I really hope people take up hope from because I, I think that's this podcast and from what we're saying because yeah, the, these issues can be overcome. And yes, it's hard work, but it's worth it. And I think that's a metaphor for life, really. And, you know, I think most of the good things in life come with hard work, but it would be worth it. Yeah, there's lots of help out there and support. And I hope you feel like you were never alone. To learn more about Champion Women and for help with any issues related to women in sport, such as sexual harassment and abuse, participation or pregnancy discrimination, please visit www.championwomen.org. And the U.S. Center for Safe Sport offers live confidential help over the phone on 866-200-0796 or visit www.uscenterforsafesport.org. Hi, this is Tracy Smith, and I would like to say a special thank you to the following people for contributing to the making of Open Stance. You are all an integral part of bringing this podcast to life. Alex Moltenoff, my editor, what a pro, thank you. Kim Rodenbaugh-Llewellyn, for your friendship, support, counsel, and your belief in me. Thank you for sharing your book, Master of the Mask, as a resource. Nancy hogshead Makar and Champion Women, Thank you for paving the way and for your leadership. You inspire me every day. Elise Marie Hunter, thank you for providing me the rights to use your Spotify track, Light as a Feather. And to my husband, Jimmy Smith, your love and continued encouragement have helped make my vision come to life. Thank you for giving me the greatest gift of all, understanding. Jimmy, you have helped me and that helped will now help many others as Open Stance grows and finds its way to people who need its support and education. And to my mentors who have shared their brave voices, you are making a difference in the world by sharing your experiences. This podcast only works with your support. Thank you to my brother Brady Height, Kim Rodenbaugh-Llewellyn, Nancy Hogshead-Makar, Gavin Badger, Aaron Aldrich-Sheen, and Amelia Thorpe, 
of ameliathorpe.blog. And a special thank you to Life and Mind Psychology in Sydney, Australia. Thank you to the founder and primary clinical psychologist, Stephanie Allen, and your amazing colleague, clinical psychologist, Alana Carpin. Thank you all very much. <laughs>